0: In the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 17, uh, Jesus is transfigured. He starts shining and uh, James and John, the author of the book of Revelation, see him in his splendor. They get a little glimpse of heaven. But as they come down the mountain, they are confronted by a man whose son is suffering terribly. And Jesus cries out, how long, O Lord, will I have to bear with these people? Uh, Last week we were given a similar vision of us and Jesus. We were given a little glimpse of heaven. We saw our future in the new creation. And the first wonder of the new creation was us. We were the holy city splendid, beautiful, perfect people where God would be. And the second wonder of that future, more spectacular even than us, was that God would be there and we would live with God and see his face. That was in chapter 21. But I wonder how you felt as you came down the mountain and kind of walked back into your working week. I wonder if, as that vision faded from your memory and you had to deal with your sin and uh, the sin of others and the pain of this world again, maybe you too, just like Jesus, cried out, how long, O Lord, will I have to bear with this sinful people? Uh, When I was a teenager, I heard a sermon on Revelation 21. In which the preacher laid out the excellencies of the new creation and compared it to this creation. In the new creation, I would be free to walk beside the Lord Jesus, free from sin and suffering and death. And this is what I longed for more than anything else. Struggling against sin is really, really, well, hard. And the shame that you feel when you sin and the distance that you feel between God. I wanted that to be over. And so after this sermon, I ran out of the back of the church and sat in the car and basically just cried out to God for the next 15 minutes while my parents finished off their conversations, How long, O Lord? Uh, Psalm 13 captures this but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. I love that psalm because it's really schizophrenic. At at the, the first ones, there's a profound sense of sorrow and longing for being with God, and then intermingled at the end there, there is actually a deep satisfaction praise in God's salvation, but there's a longing for more. And Romans chapter 8 explains this, is because as Christians, we actually belong in the new creation. Because God's spirit lives in us, we belong, we don't belong in this world, we belong in the new creation, and so we long for it. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. And so for Christians, Proverbs chapter 13 verse 12 rings true. This is the classic verse of the fiancé. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. When you have hope and it's not fulfilled, you feel sick. You thirst for more. So as we come down the mountain from the high point of last week, it's a great comfort that in our passage, Jesus repeatedly tells us, we who wait eagerly for the new creation, he says in verse 20, have a look there. He says, surely I am coming soon. And the broken-hearted Christian, the hopeful Christian, responds, Amen, come Lord Jesus, in verse 20. And that little word, soon, turns up five times in these verses. So have a look at it. Verse 6, The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his servant to show his servants what must soon take place. Verse 7, Jesus himself says, Behold, I am coming soon. Verse 10, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon. And just in case you missed it, verse 20, Surely I am coming soon. Two times from the lips of the angel whom Jesus has sent, and three times from the lips of Jesus himself, Behold, I am coming soon. And this, I hope you see, is a wonderful encouragement for struggling Christians in their battle against sin. Maybe, well, in my family home growing up, my parents have a sign at the front door that says perhaps today. And it's a it was a reminder for us that perhaps today Jesus will come back. He is coming soon. And whenever there was an exam on, <coughs> I walked out the front door, <coughs> that was my prayer. Today's the day. Come now, before 10 a.m. Make sure, <laughs> perhaps today. <coughs> and I hope you can see it is a great that's a trivial example, but for Christians who are, struggling, who are really struggling against sin and perhaps struggling with mental illness or chronic fatigue or some sort of serious relationship breakdown, every day they wake up with this stuff. The promise that I am coming soon is a great comfort. Furthermore, when Jesus comes, he will bring his recompense. That's in verse 12. Uh, The word recompense there literally is he will bring his wages. Verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and and the end. Blessed are those, this is the wages for the blessed, blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. And this is the wages of the wicked. Outside are the dogs, sorcerers and the sexually immoral, and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So when Jesus comes, the promise is that he will give the city that we read about earlier and the tree of life to his people, but that everyone else will be left outside of the city. This is the great separation at the end of the age, the insiders and the outsiders. But this separation takes place while we wait. And so we find a series of exhortations and warnings and blessings and invitations and incentives in these verses while we wait for the Lord Jesus to come, so that we, when he comes, receive the blessing, we, we are the insiders, and we find ourselves not on the outside. And so Jesus proclaims a blessing upon the person who keeps the words of this book, verse 7. And he proclaims a blessing on those who wash their robes, verse 14. And the spirit and the bride announce that blessing is available for the thirsty, in verse 17. And John warns in verses 18 and 19 that those who disregard his word will be cursed. So as the chapter unfolds, really it's all about Jesus and the blessings and the cursings that he brings. And the pointy end of this chapter is, make sure you're on the inside and not on the outside. There are three essential exhortations in this passage, and that is, keep the words of this book, we'll think about that, wash your robes in the blood of the Lamb, And come to Jesus to quench your thirst. And we'll look at each of them in turn. So firstly, keep the words of this book. I wonder if you noticed as the Bible was read for us, how central the words of this book are in the chapter. Verse 6, these words are trustworthy and true. Verse 7, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 9, the angel is a servant of God along with those who keep the words of this book. Verse 10, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Verse 18 to 19, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book, and if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. John really rates this book. And John really thinks that your attitude to this book matters. In fact, he began this way. If you flick quickly back to chapter 1, verse 3, or not, if you just want to listen, Blessed is the one, he says... Who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So at the beginning and end of his book, he's saying, the words of the prophecy of this book really matter. If you keep them, you will be blessed. If you disregard them, you will be cursed. And since John has been drawing on the Old Testament so much as we've gone through the series, and since in the providence of God, these exhortations are at the end of the whole Bible, I think that we can read these words as an instruction to pay attention to the whole Bible. When I am choosing a book to read, I will look at the author of the book, if I know the author, that he is trustworthy or is a good writer, then I'll consider it. And then I will look at the inside recommendations. And if I know the people who are recommending it, if Philip Jensen is recommending it, if William Taylor is recommending it, <clears throat> something like that, and they are giving glowing reviews, then I'll really consider reading the book. Well, the Bible is. Well, the author is God and God himself, which is the only opinion that matters, says, Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And so I don't really like being obvious in my application, but I think I need to ask, how are you going reading your Bible? Uh, Do you actually read the Bible? Or maybe a more insightful question would be, do you trust God? You see, I've never met anyone who doesn't want to be blessed by God. We all want to be blessed by God, but I've met plenty of Christians who struggle to read their Bibles. But if you believed God's word, that there is a blessing for those who keep the word of God, then surely we would read our Bibles. I'm preaching to myself as much as to you. (laughs) At that point. <clears throat> but what does it mean to keep the words of this book? Well, first of all, in the passage, verse 6, keeping the words of this book means that you hold them as trustworthy and true. Secondly, to keep the words of this book is to worship God in response to what you see and hear. So in verse 8, we're told that John there, after seeing and hearing these things, fell down and worshipped the angel who told them about it. And the angel, and I'm paraphrasing here, says, What the heck are you doing? You idiot. Worship God. Now, this is a huge theme in the book of Revelation. It's really the big theological theme in the book that God is worthy of our praise. So, the 24 elders and the four living creatures and the multitude of the nations and the slain worshippers and the angels, everyone in the book is worshipping and praising God and the Lamb. But on the other hand in the book, the evildoers, Babylon, uh, the beast, the dragon, they are all worshipping the beast. And so the big theological point of the whole book is, and the pointy end of the whole book is, Are you going to worship God, or are you going to worship the beast? Do you belong to the new Jerusalem, or do you belong to Babylon? Are you living for this world, or are you living for the world to come? And here, John says that keeping the words of the prophecy of the book will mean worshipping God. That is, paying attention to the purpose of revelation and worshipping God. Thirdly, verse 10, keeping the words of the prophecy of the book will mean not sealing it up. And as I've said, now's the time to read your Bible. Uh, number four, keeping the word will mean not tampering with it. Verses 18 and 19. There you're not to take from it and you don't add to it. God thinks, John thinks that the Bible is perfect. Perfect. It's not like, it's well, it's the perfect recipe. It's Nigella's uh, chocolate cake. You don't add anything, you don't take away anything from it. It's just right. And so that boils down for for us, though, in really practical ways. Because the Word of God uh, says things that we disagree with. And our culture disagrees with. Um, and when we find something in the Bible that we disagree with, we mustn't kind of brush it under the carpet and or change it or water it down or something like that. We need to change our mind. And when our culture disagrees with the Bible and says it's backward and stupid, say in its sexual ethics or in the Bible's insistence that there is a real heaven and a real hell, we've got to stick with what the Bible says, even when it's uncomfortable. So one example that maybe is a little bit close to home is that when the Bible says, forgive as the Lord forgave you, and your body is physically repulsed by the idea of forgiving the person who has wronged you, you do as the Bible says. You forgive the person. To keep the words of this book will mean not tampering with it. Uh, Fifth and finally, to keep the words of the prophecy of this book is to be obedient to the purposes for which it, it was written. Keeping is a word for obedience. It's not a word for just keeping it on your shelf, holding it in your hand, It's a word of obedience. We need to not only read the Bible, we need to obey it. And the purpose of the book of Revelation has been, as we said, to worship God and to remain faithful to Jesus, to come out of Babylon and to look forward to the new creation, waiting patiently for the new Jerusalem without compromise. So in the end, to keep the words of the prophecy of this book, is to take hold of eternal life. It's to come to Jesus and take hold of eternal life. Take hold of the blessings that are outlined in this book. That's what it means to keep the word of this prophecy. So John begins his book in the same way he began it, with a promise of blessing upon those who keep the words of this book. In the waiting room of eternity... There aren't a bunch of outdated chocolate-stained magazines like in the waiting rooms of this world. There is one book to read, and it is the Bible. And your attitude to the Word of God determines your final destination, whether you are blessed or cursed. For these people who keep the Word of God, who trust God's Word, worship God, and come to Jesus for blessing, their place will be in the holy city. For those who disregard the word of God, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. And the heart of the Christian cries out, Amen, come Lord Jesus. So that's the first thing that we do in the meantime. The second thing, as we wait for Jesus' return, is to wash their robes in the in the blood of the Lamb. Verse 14. Jesus promises a blessing on those who wash their robes. And this reminds us of chapter 7. If you flick back in your Bibles to chapter 7 of Revelation. Chapter 7, verses 9 to 14. Where there's a great multitude, look at it, from every nation, tribe, tongue, standing before the throne of God, clothed in white robes, and they cry out, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And down in verse 14, the elder identifies these people as the ones coming out of the great tribulation who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is the second thing that we are to do in the meantime. <clears throat> um, I wonder if you know the story of Penelope Judd. I'm looking for smiles. Does anyone know the story of Penelope Judd? It's a really fun rap by a guy called Shylin. I'm not going to rap it. I'm just going to describe the story. Penelope Judd. <clears throat> uh, Google it. It's called Penelope Judd. Shylin. Anyway, Penelope Judd lived in a town called Mud, and she used to play in the mud all day long with her friends. But one day she was invited to an amazing party. Um, The royal palace sent a royal invitation to her, she opened it up, you are welcome to the party of of the king. And it was a long uh, trip to the palace, but she left the town of mud and she went uh, to the palace to get into the party. But when she got there, she knocked on the door and the servant opened the door and she, he wouldn't let her in. He pulled out a mirror and showed Penelope Judd that she was covered in mud from top to toe and said, the king doesn't let anyone dirty into his house. You're you're not welcome here. And she looked at the palace and it was spotless and beautiful and she looked at him and he was immaculately dressed in a white robe and she knew that she wasn't worthy, so she turned around and went to go back to the town of Mud. But then, to a great surprise, she heard a voice from the party shout out, you can let her in. And as she turned around, who should be at the door? but the king himself. And the king uh, looked at her and said, be clean. And suddenly she looked down and she was wearing this spotless, beautiful white robe. And she said, where did you get it from? And the king said, well, actually, it's mine. And together they walked into the party and... uh, it's a happy ending. I told you I love happy endings. Um, <clears throat> now, the story of Penelope Judd is our story as Christians. Uh, we are all dirty, living in a town of mud, unworthy to enter into God's presence, unworthy to enter into the city that we described last week. If you just glance over to chapter 21, verses 20, verse 27, you'll see there that nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who is detestable and false. And yet the person who comes to Jesus can be made clean because Jesus has authority to make them clean. Having paid the price for sin as he died on the cross, he has the authority to take away the sins of the person who comes to him. To wash him clean or wash her clean, taking away all her sins and clothing us in his own righteousness and welcoming us into his household. God, Jesus, is able to do that because he is the lamb who took away the sins of the world. So entrance into the city is guaranteed because of Jesus. We can look forward to these things because Jesus died in our place and has clothed us in a perfectly clean white robe. His righteousness. Do you trust that Jesus can do that for you? Have you washed your robes in the blood of the Lamb? If you have, you are blessed, Jesus says. You're an insider with nothing to fear, because you have washed your robes. And the Christian heart cries, "Amen, come, Lord Jesus." Thirdly, as we wait for Jesus' return, the insiders are outsider-focused. Verse seventeen: The Spirit and the Bride say, "Come," and let the one who says, "Who hears," say, "Come." And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. That is the activity of the insiders while we wait for Jesus' return. We want the outsiders to come in. The Spirit, in verse 17, is the great evangelist who convicts the world of sin, righteousness and judgment, bringing people to Christ. Without the work of the Spirit, none of us would have come to Jesus. The bride there, that's us. And the Spirit and the bride say, come to the world. Come to Jesus. You who are thirsty, take the invitation of living water. Maybe earlier when you heard that uh, Jesus was coming soon, the question raised in your mind I don't really trust him because he said that 2,000 years ago and we're still here. Maybe that came to your mind. Well, in 2 Peter chapter 3, we are told that scoffers will come and say, where is the promise of his coming? All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But Peter goes on, they deliberately overlook the fact that God destroyed the world already at in the times of Noah, and he's promised to destroy the world with fire again later. And Peter goes on to explain, therefore, why God is taking such a long, from our perspective, time of incoming. And he says, Do not overlook this fact, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God hasn't wrapped up this world yet because he is waiting patiently for people to come to Jesus, for thirsty people to become insides and to be welcomed into the new creation. So as we begin our spring mission, it's helpful to realize that we are only here because God wants to fill his city with men and women who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. We are only here because he wants people to come to Jesus. And our role is there in verse 17 to say, Come, So as spring mission commences, that's what we'll be doing. We'll be inviting people to come and take the water of life without price. From the one who has authority to give life. That's what we hold out to the world. We hold out something really, really wonderful. I hope you know that. We hold out refreshment and hope and new life in the Lord Jesus. And this offer isn't just for unbelievers. It's an invitation to everyone who is thirsty. So at the start, um, I said that I felt sick with a longing for the new creation. Thirsty, hungry for something more than this world. And the medicine for that hunger and that thirst is to come to Jesus now and be refreshed. Refreshed by his forgiveness and washing us clean from our sins that wear, wear us out, and the promise of transformation now, day by day, and worship God. And friends, it's not like as we wait for Jesus' return, we are just kind of grin at and bear at people who grind on and have a miserable time. <clears throat> no, we can come to Jesus now and be refreshed. His burden is light I hope you know that, that it's not just a future comfort um, in the new creation, but we are a new creation now. And we can enjoy, in a small way now, what we will fully enjoy then. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come to you if you're a downcast Christian on Struggle Street. Come to Jesus. If you're thirsty, be refreshed. Let the One who can give you life... Uh, refresh you. The trouble is, at the end of verse uh, 17, it's free. Do you notice how it's free? And um, I don't know about you, but I am skeptical about free things. Like, free things are worthless things. That's why um, Mac, these days, Apple Macs, never reduce the prices. They just keep them all all the same, because free things, cheaper things, are worthless things. That's the way we think. Um, I watched a game show bit recently where they sent out this guy into the streets of New York with $10 notes and a big sign saying, free money. And the, the bit was that the guy walked out with, $10 $10 notes and tried to hand them out like the sales do, but no one would take the money and they just walked past because they thought it was a joke. And But some people, the, the surprise was that some people did take the money, but then they threw the money in the bin or they handed the money back because I suppose they thought it's fake or it's stolen because the last thing it's going to be is free. And so that that's really that's really funny, <clears throat> but <clears throat> here there, there's no strings attached. Um, at this point, the <clears throat> the phrase "the best things in life are free" is true. Just because it's free doesn't mean it's worthless or any less refreshing to come to. In fact, it's good because you don't have to earn it. We can just come to Jesus and be refreshed anytime we want. We don't have to um, kind of pull our socks up before we can come to Jesus for refreshment. Uh, this is promised in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 5. God says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without price. So if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian today, sorry, it's not because you have failed to do something for God. It's because you haven't come to see that God has something free to offer you, new life in the Lord Jesus. And if you're a struggling Christian today, it's not because you... It's not like you need to pull your socks up and do better before you come to God. No, you can come whenever you want. It's free of charge. And in John's Gospel, Jesus himself cried out, Anyone who thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow streams of living water. Later on in John's Gospel, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, He says, I thirst, and the soldiers pierce his side after he's dead, and water flows out from his side, and it's as if John is saying, it is by Jesus' death that he will satisfy our thirst and give us life. And so the cross holds out refreshment and forgiveness and new life, and you can come to it whenever you want. Uh, Finally, the resurrection of Jesus is solid proof that there is life beyond death and that Jesus has authority to give it. So after Jesus appears to his disciples, having been resurrected from the dead, John, in the purpose statement of his gospel, says, Now Jesus did many signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So before the return of the judge, Jesus, who will separate people into outsiders and insiders, the church holds out the water of eternal life, calling upon thirsty people to come to Jesus in faith and repentance. All right. So the Bible ends in hope of Jesus' return and says that in the meantime, we will keep the words of the prophecy of this book, we'll take seriously what the Bible says, and be blessed. We are blessed if we wash our robes in the blood of the Lamb, and we are blessed if we come to the Lord Jesus for forgiveness and refreshment and new life. And in the meantime, the role of the church is to invite outsiders to do the same, to come to Jesus for a blessing. When Jesus returns, there will be those who enter the city of God and see his face and are perfectly satisfied for all eternity, and there will be those who are thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. So, to close, <clears throat> um, I want to ask, which, which are you? Are you an outsider or an insider? Uh, Bertram Russell was clearly an outsider, the great atheist. He said this, There is a darkness without... And when I die, there will be darkness within. There is no splendor, no vastness anywhere. Only triviality for a moment, and then nothing. That is the outsider's outlook on life. Darkness, dullness, triviality for a moment, and then nothing. No hope at all. In Romans 1, God describes an outsider's heart in similar terms. He says that darkness clouds our hearts because we worship the things of this world and not God. The challenge of this book has been all along will you worship God and the Lamb, or will you worship the beast? Will you have hope in the new creation, or will you live for this creation? Will you live for the Lord or die with death? If your heart is set on the things of the world, God will confirm your heart, darken your heart, and Jesus says that you'll be thrust out into utter darkness. But if your heart is set on the world to come, if you long for something more, if you are thirsty, and you come to Jesus, then you will walk with God in the new creation. Uh, John Newton's great song, which I hoped that we would sing today, but um, I was too too late getting it in. Um, "Glorious things of you of you are spoken," has this beautiful stanza: "See the streams of living water, springing from eternal love." Well supply your sons and daughters, and all fear of want removed. Who can faint while such a river ever flows their thirst to fade? Grace which, like the Lord the giver, never fails from age to age. And every stanza of that song is just as good. C.S. Lewis said, If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy... The most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Augustine said, O God, you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until we find rest in you. Jonathan Edwards said, The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends, are but shadows, but God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. And so the Bible ends with this great hope and this great question, do you long for the new creation? Do you long for something more? Are you thirsty? Does your heart cry out, come Lord Jesus? If your heart cries out, come Lord Jesus, in verse 20, then you're a Christian. And the Bible leaves with a wonderful encouragement. Surely I am coming soon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word of blessing. Thank you for the gospel that forgives us and gives us new life. Thank you for the promise of your son's return, that we will not be waiting long before he brings us to our eternal home. While we wait, please bless us as we read your word. Please forgive us when we fail. And please make us clean through the blood of your Son. Please refresh us even now with the waters of life. Our hearts long for the new creation. Our hearts long to see your face. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.